Hello, Horror Fanatics! I'm Frank. And I'm Jen. And we welcome you to our weekly podcast... Oh! oh the the horror. horror! Thank you for joining us as we dive supernatural, scary, and downright creepy. If you like what you hear, rate, review, and subscribe to add us to your regular rotation of podcasts. You can also submit any ideas, comments, and suggestions... Two in a row to OT our email address at OTH at seriouslydecent.com. Just like that. Just like that, I blow it. (laughs) And you can check our website out, ohthehorrorpodcast.com, to connect to our Facebook group, Instagram page, catch our back catalog, connect to your favorite platform. Yup. You can do those things. Yeah. How's it going today? Not bad. Yeah. Not bad. I'm trying to be more active in the Facebook group. Yeah. Notice that. Yeah. I like it. I find some things every now and again, and I'm like, yeah. I know where I can share this. Yeah. That's uh, I. That's something uh, I've been kind of thinking, you know, of along the lines of new things this year to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, we spent all first year just trying to get the podcast right. Yeah. What do we, how should we do the podcast? And, yes. And I think we're, we've crossed that hump. Have we? I think we're pretty comfortable <laughs> with it. Have we? Well, I laugh when we're done. It's like, I think we're getting the hang of this. Yeah. Episode 60 today. Yeah. We have uh, two families. We do. That we're bringing up. Yep. One's the, uh, the Snedeker family. Yes, the Campbell Snedeker family. Campbell, yeah, and that's based, uh, there was a movie based on that. We'll get to that uh, at another time. And I'll be doing that one, and yes. you're doing... I'm doing the Tallman family, and they didn't have a movie. No. But they did appear on an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. Well, you know, we just watched the movie for the Snedekers. Oh, we're going to and watch a second. The- episode from unsolved mystery but it was a second viewing yeah and the first viewing i did i didn't know much about it i knew kind of about it and then watched the movie and things were a bit hazy Mm -hmm. then just watching the movie now yeah well i mean we're unsolved mysteries is more of like here's what happened yeah and they're pretty accurate about it because they don't have to sell like a hour and 40 minute dramatization no, of something. they don't. They can just, you know, state the facts, ma'am. Just the facts. Just the facts. Yeah. Just a tip. That's... <laughs> no. So how do you want to do this? You want to go first or um, me? I th- why don't you go first? Why don't you do the Campbells okay. and uh, I'll do the Tallman family. I do have two sources, unsolvedmysteries.fandom.com. It's their wiki, mm-hmm. and it's the Tallman House, and then uh, UPI.com archives from nineteen from February nineteenth, nineteen eighty eight, haunted house to be sold. Yeah, it was a longer title, but it uh, mm-hmm. it has spoilers, so yeah. I only gave you a part of the title. So that's where I'm looking at this point. Yeah, because I hear the Campbells and Snedekers interchangeably. Yes. And I got a little tossed around with it yes. at first. Well, I think it and gets back to uh, not everyone 
wants to have their story have out their there. story out there. So yeah. uh, in the movie, it's the Campbell family. Mm-hmm. When I originally Googled them, it was Campbell Snedeker. Um, yeah. Because I think you have to actually search both to get the full story. Yeah, and there's quite a full story, to be honest with you. Yes. And, you know, not surprised one bit. On the whole thing. So my sources, I was a bit all over. I got the movie overview from watching it, but also from Wikipedia because, I mean, it's a movie. Mm-hmm. I don't have to do some deep, crazy stuff there. Mm-hmm. And then I went to um, chasingthefrog.com because they did a kind of match back and forth with the Snedekers mm-hmm. and the actors and kind of... It was a good one because it kind of questioned the story. It did a nice matchup. So I'm going to lean on that one pretty heavy. Then there was the uh, Today uh, Updater blog spot, which I got some fill-in stuff. Atlas Obscura, which was pretty good. And uh, LiveScience.com. I always try to see if they got some. Mm-hmm. They didn't let me down on this one. And then I went to like a way off one, uh, Terror 29 Haunted House. They do like haunted houses and stuff. Okay. And then there was the actual, um, there was an article for NBC Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Right. Which I'll elaborate later. But basically what we have here is a story with Carmen and Alan Snedeker. They're three sons, their daughter, and two nieces moving into a home in Southington, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. The eldest Snedeker son was uh, diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. And the family made the choice to move to Connecticut at that point to be closer to his doctors to save money because he was getting treatment. Right, yes. So what they weren't initially aware of was that the home that they had rented in Connecticut, right. in Southington Town, was once a funeral parlor. And it had tools and bloody furniture still in a room in the basement. Right. This is what they were saying. So despite discovering all of this stuff, they moved into the home regardless. Right. Uh, Many people believe they chose to stay because of financial reasons. It was cheaper to just stay in that home than to find a new one to accommodate. Right. And, and, you know, go through. So you could buy that stress of someone going through a procedure. You're... concentrate it's more hard on, enough with the treatments yeah you're concentrating and, more yeah. on that and yep. you know everything else is kind of just background. secondary mm-hmm. so strange things started at the house and it started off fairly innocent the mother noticing items around the house going missing the children started to talk about seeing strange people in the home and basically this uh this man with long black hair just kept like making an appearance then the eldest son had a drastic personality change, and that included vi- uh, violent outbursts. He attacked family members out of nowhere and didn't seem like himself. Doctors diagnosed him with schizophrenia, but the family was not convinced. They believed that his strange and terrifying behavior was a result of the environment and the ghosts in the home. Mm-hmm. And probably the strangest incident that the family reported was when the parents claimed that they had been raped and sodomized by something in the home. Okay. So basically, you know, the family stayed at this home regardless for two or more years. People made the assumption that their stories were made up because they didn't understand 
why they would stay home where they experienced these terrible things. Right. And when things didn't get better in the home, the family invited a pair of paranormal investigators to assist in ridding their home of the evil inside it. Wait, wait, wait. Don't tell me. They're in Connecticut, so it must be Ed and Lorraine Warren. You got it. Ah, do I get like a cookie or door something? By, door number two. Well, you get some tea. You already got tea. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so Ed and Lorraine, cue them in. And okay. at this time, they're the, a very controversial pair of self-taught paranormal investigators and based out of Connecticut. Ed was a, uh, if, you, if you don't know, we did a podcast on the two of them we in sure the first did. season. Back in the day. And uh, Ed was the demonologist, lecturer, and author, yep. while Lorraine was the clairvoyant medium. Yep. Ed and Lorraine joined uh, in The Haunting in Connecticut, which, just to preface, the movie titled the same. Yes. Haunting in uh, Connecticut. Uh, they spent weeks in the home to get the full demonic experience. And after their As investigation. Yes. After uh, their investigation, they declared that the morticians that worked in the home when it was a funeral parlor practiced necromancy and had infused the home with a deep evil. That's their words. Okay. Infused the home with a deep evil. Fair enough. And uh, the Warrens performed an exorcism on the home to rid the evil and make it safe for the family to return. Okay. And basically, this is the story... Over and over where you see What's the story, Morning Glory? Um, and it's basically that, you know, all the stories that I connected together, that was kind of a, a mash of a few of them. Okay. Because it's just basically they they discovered that the house was a funeral parlor. The eldest son saw ghosts and had these visions. The visions spread to the other family members. And they're raped and sodomized by demons. Thing goes across the board. Uh, one thing that was worth mentioning was uh, one day as Carmen, the mother, mopped the floor, the water suddenly turned blood red and smelled of decaying flesh. That was uh, another thing that took place. I would be so pissed. You're like, here I am trying to clean this floor and you're 100% working against me. Yeah. You son of a bitch. So then uh, the Snedekers had told their story many times, including on national talk shows and in a Discovery Channel TV show. The film's uh, poster states in capital letters, based on true events. The typical deal. Yep. And uh, basically to get from this transition of what happened at the house to how it started getting out, Ed Lorraine... Yes. Pushed it out. They're but the then catalyst. The Snedeker story is a complete body of work. First came to light um, from horror novelist Ray Garton's 1992 book, In a Dark Place, The Story of a True Haunting. Okay. And this was, um, he had an interview in Horror Bound Magazine. Garton discussed how the true story behind the haunting in uh, Connecticut came about. So he was hired by Ed and Lorraine to work with the Snedekers and write the true story of the house from hell. Okay. He interviewed all the family members about their experiences and soon realized there was a problem. In quote from Garten, the author, I found that the accounts of the individual uh, Snedekers didn't quite mesh. They couldn't keep their story straight. Okay. So he went to Ed with this problem. You know what Ed said? 
go with it. Oh, they're crazy. <laughs> he said, you got some of the story. Just use what works and make the rest up. Just make it up and make it scary. Oh, my Lord. So that's, that's what Ed said. Now, I wasn't in the room. Right. I don't know. But, right. But uh, it, it's been kind of. Yeah. Th- I didn't get this from one site. I got them from a few. Okay. So Garten, who accepted the job, expecting to have a real true story. Right. Uh, to base the book on, did as he told. And he says, quote, I used what I could, made up the rest, tried to make it as scary as I could. So if you're a, uh, um, a fan of the 1992 book by Ray Garten, In a Dark Place, The Story of a True Haunting, Mm-hmm. And if you read it and you just were captivated by the story, yes, it's made up. Sorry. Well, no, I'm not going to say made up. Embellished, yes, is probably the better term we could use at this point of the discussion. Correct. Though the Snedekers stand by their story, it seems there is little or no proof that anything supernatural occurred at the house. And whether or not the Snedekers actually believe their story, they stood to make money from the book deal. Correct. Because they were aware of the Lutz family of Amityville, New York. Yep. And they profited great from selling the rights to their true story of a haunted house, the Mm -hmm. Amityville Horror. Yes. And that's long since been revealed as fiction by investigator Rick uh, Osuna and some others because we did that podcast. We did. And, or that episode. We did. (laughs) I brought up the issues with Amityville A couple times. And, and coincidentally. My, my issues with Ed and Lorraine. Coin- coincidentally. As a result. Yeah. yeah. Coincidentally, the, the Warrens were involved in the Amityville case. Yes. So it's, uh, it's an interesting state of affairs. Now, here's some interesting things about the house. Okay. I felt I found pretty interesting uh, in this whole type of. The uh, best would be if it was never a mortuary. <laughs> Now that's true. So it's true that it never was or that it was. No, it was a funeral parlor. Okay. But here's here's the bit. They rented it. Yes. And basically the current owner of the house hasn't had any issues with it. Right. The landlady found the whole story ridiculous that was leasing it to the Snedekers. Right. She noted that nobody before or since experienced anything unusual in the house. And basically, the Snedeker family stayed in the house for more than two years mm-hmm. before finally deciding to leave. Right. Now, I have to really kind of emphasize, they rented the house. Right. So they could have left at any time. At any time, yes. Some of these stories we talk about where the, they bought the house. Yeah. That's tough That's commitment. That's different, yes. Especially, I mean, in your first year, two years... Rule of thumb is is you got to own a house for five years before you have you can even remotely yeah. think of leaving the house, and that's if your value stayed up or increased, yeah. and you know all that stuff. But so they rented from 1986 to 88. The eldest son did have cancer; that was real. Okay, because the movie, after watching it the second time, yes, is it's a work of fiction. Mm-hmm. I would say instead of based on a truce, inspired, Fired. which I think they need to start using that more, but it doesn't sell. And we talk about that in yes. other episodes yes. where they got to, they got to push the units. Yep. You know, but he did have a Hodgkin's lymphoma. 
Mm -hmm. They did move to be near a hospital. That part's true. Uh, The house was a former funeral home. Okay. Uh, Daryl Kern, the former owner of the Southington home, confirmed that prior to purchasing the property in the 80s, it had served as the Hallahan Funeral Home for multiple decades. Okay. And that's uh, all this stuff is independently sourced by different things. Right. Uh, The mom, you know, the question is, is did the mom really know that the house was formerly a funeral home? And that depends on who you ask, basically is what they say. Carmen Snedeker, or the real Mrs. Sarah Campbell, you know how we'll stick with the Snedekers to keep it copacetic. Claims as depicted in the movie that she was never informed the house had been used as a funeral home. Carmen said that she had not been in the basement due to the renovation materials blocking the stairway. Now, I'm sorry. I want to check the freaking I'm going to check the whole place out. Yeah. I'm not just going to assume things. But they had a sick son. I can yeah. be a little empathetic with that. They only found the embalming equipment after they moved in. However, the former owner and their in-house neighbor. Okay. We're going to keep going back to this. In-house neighbor, because it wasn't just them. There was someone living upstairs. Up above, okay. Okay, that's not in the movie. No. At all. Nope, not even Um, a little. So, the, however, the former owner and their in-house neighbor claimed the family was fully informed of the situation prior to it being rented. The big question, back to haunting type stuff, was did the mop water turn bloody red? Because that was a feature in the movie. Right. And she said it did. And she said deep, deep red made her skin crawl. Then there was also that big moment and another key moment in the movie where the dishes put themselves away. Okay. Remember that part? So they have an in-house neighbor. Mm -hmm. Did said neighbor hear anything? You ready for this? Yes. No. Okay. Nothing. All right. So the, uh, they were saying that the whole dishes thing really did happen. Yep. And they thought they were losing their mind. The niece really did live with the family because they were trying yeah. to help out. The younger brother really did spin around on the gurney. That okay. happened. But it was him pushing them and all that. Yeah. Did the lights flicker without the light bulbs? That big okay. part in the movie yep. there. And according to the middle son, Bradley, the lights were coming on and off and on and off, even though there were no bulbs in it. Okay. Okay. And basically the real crux of the questions I I saw on a lot of these is did this guy see things because of the treatment of side effects? Because, because the, the movie really kind of harps on that. Like he couldn't get the treatment if he was seeing things. Right. They say no. And they asked the oncologist about the possibility of visual side effects. And he said there was no chance of him having uh, uh, hallucinations, hallucinations or delusions with the medicine he was on. Okay. So they're saying it isn't anything with that. The son did sleep in the basement. Okay. And it was because the upstairs rooms were smaller mm-hmm. and they could accommodate the other ones. So they, um, the two brothers slept in the casket display room down the hall from the former emba- embalming room. So, how many se- seances uh, were conducted in the house? Zero. Zero. Yeah. So that was added by the film. The right. filmmakers uh, yes. confessed to that. And the reason was is because it had to provide an explanation for the supernatural elements of the movie. 
Yeah. That's how they connect all this crap together. Yeah. They did find old pictures of dead people in there. Okay. That was uh that was real. But there was only a couple photos, not right. many. Like they had yeah. that whole stack yeah. and it was yep. people leaning next to them. Uh there were many toe tags and a head tag, and there were other personal items of the deceased. Okay. So I mean it's plausible that they could have had some weird stuff going on. Well, I think the bigger you thing know. you have to take in, into consideration is it's not I don't think we need to take the funeral home as the source. The source is the sun. Because time and again, when you get into these stories, it's that upheaval, it's that upset, there's some sort of imbalance or there's some sort of emotional trauma going on. And Mm -hmm. this is a family that is in trauma, essentially, because this this treatment for the son it it was so bad they had to rent a place mm-hmm. so that he could be closer to the hospital for his treatments yeah so to take it at that value i would be inclined to believe okay yes you could have poltergeist activity because possible. because that is the i'm not going to deny it but what really shits on it for me is that the person but upstairs it, yeah exactly nothing. that's that's, that's my thought wasn't yet yeah, complete. Yeah, because that's, if it was indeed poltergeist activity, yeah, which would be a hundred percent plausible given the circumstances, then he should have heard. Yeah, something. he or she, whoever yeah. it was up there, you he know, didn't they, hear him get raped and you know, sodomized. Yeah, or was he getting it? Maybe he liked it. <laughs> was he the raper? But in the movie, they had uh, dead people with writing carved on them. Yes. None of that was uh, seen there. The, the family comes out with that. Right. Uh, some, but they, you know, they did have sightings and this includes the thin man with the high cheekbones, long black hair that I talked about yep. earlier and another with white hair wearing a uh, pinstriped uh, tuxedo. Okay. Uh, another thing was, did the son have a radical personality change? And according to the family, they say, yes, he became distant, dark, violent, uh, like a meanness had come over him. I mean, he's going through treatment. Yeah, he's again, like that's all staring. entirely plausible. Yeah, and then did the son meet, uh, you know, the reverend during cancer treatments? That's false in the movie. Right. Uh, any priests that did come were from the Catholic Church and not the hospital. Right. The shower scene where it suffocates the, uh, the, niece. the niece. Did that happen? Not exactly. In the movie, it, you know, yeah. just envelopes her and ghosts, but... They um, had a, the source that I had here had a correspondence with the real life mother. And she said, yes, the curtain did wrap around my face so that I couldn't breathe. My niece had to come and rescue me. I couldn't have fallen as I was being pressed upon. So. So that already is an issue because that's saying it was the mother that had the issue in the movie. It was the niece. Well, it says Carmen Reed. It's the mother of the niece. I don't know. It, it, this is what I'm saying. Like, yeah, where the writer was saying, like, the stories don't match. match. You know, yes. it's um, did Matt Campbell, Philip uh, Snedeker attack his cousin, Tammy. The ambulance took him to the mental hospital where he remained for 45 days. He did. Yeah. Uh, did the father really remove all the light bulbs from the house when he came in and yeah. the movie he was all and drunk was all and drunk, all that yeah. stuff? Yeah, but not drunk like he was in the movie. Right. After seeing the high electric bill, he concluded that this was because they were sleeping with all the lights on and he took them out to right. get control. 
That's something my dad would do. That's 100% a dad move. Yeah, that's exactly what my dad would that's do. That's 100% dad right yeah, there. Yeah, that is that is a dad move. Uh, did the real life uh, Snedeker find bodies in the walls of the home? Nope. nope. Yeah. That was Hollywood to explain who was haunting the family yep. and why. Yep. Because apparently Hollywood thinks you're stupid as a viewer. And, <laughs> and well, since- I will say, as uh, watching it, I didn't watch it with the intent that it was yeah. true events. It was compelling storytelling. Like, yeah, but I think like they really could have made this story a psychological thriller. They could have. And but... that would require a better person to make the yeah, movie. Yeah. I, I'm not taking a, a, a full stab at the person who made it, but so now uh towards the end of the house or the, the movie, the sun burns the house down. Yeah. That, that didn't, didn't happen. happen. Never tried to burn the house down. The filmmakers needed a climactic way. To release Question. the demons from the home. So what's funny is at the end of the movie, they say nothing, uh, no hauntings after after the house was rebuilt and all that other yeah. stuff. It yeah, says yeah, yeah. it on there. Rebuilt, like, resold. Resold and, and all that. Yeah. Like like it happened. Yeah. And it didn't. Right. This is, you know, so it's not just the Snedekers that are yes. pushing shit on this, you know. So, Did the son have a full recovery from his cancer? As they stated in the movie. Okay. And so now we're getting into the meat and potatoes of the story. Here. Yes. The answer is he didn't survive cancer. Okay. However, he had his remission after the movie was released. Okay. So according to the movie and the time period of the movie. Yes. He survived cancer. Okay. But unfortunately, and I think this is the saddest part of the whole story of this is you have this person just battling cancer. Right. And this story just envelope, yes. you know, just yes. takes over this whole thing. He was working as a trucker, had four children, and unfortunately his cancer returned and ultimately ultimately claimed his life uh, August 9th, 2012. Okay. And he's buried in the Wilson Cemetery in Elizabethton, Tennessee. Well, so. I mean, it's not like he was a, a teenager. Oh, no, but I mean, this was in yeah. the early 80s, so I mean... He did have yeah. an extra 30, 30 years, basically. So the answer was yes and no. Okay. Is the house still haunted? No. Current owner of the Southington home, Susan Trotta Smith, the true story is that the house is not haunted now and never was. Right. We've lived in the house for 10 years. Our house is wonderful. And she said that all the Hollywood foolishness, the stories are ludicrous, just the whole right. deal. Right, yeah. And then uh, why do the Snedekers believe the house was haunted? Uh, the Snedeker family brought in paranormal researchers, including John Zaffis, Ed, and Lorraine Warren, to help pinpoint the problems. The researchers believe that the former funeral workers were guilty of necrophilia, which led to the evil presence. Mm-hmm. And then basically they later reported that former workers were found guilty of the crime, although... No one is able to find documentation regarding this claim. Right. So yeah. this is the typical, and I mean, like, I get that paranormal researchers have, like, the greatest intentions. Yeah. But when you go in and have a feeling about something, don't say it until you can back it up with something. Yeah. It's yeah. just because otherwise it's you can say whatever the hell you want to yeah. say. Oh, like Aleister Crowley? Well, no, just like... 
I mean, if a cop acted like this, a police officer, mm-hmm. they would be like, well, you know, cops just, you know, going to accuse anybody of doing anything without any proof. But but I laugh how a paranormal researcher can do this yeah. under the same pretense, yeah. the same action. And, oh, they're enlightened. They're this, they're that. Right. And, uh, yeah, so honestly, if you believe that whole thing that the funeral workers were guilty of necrophilia, there's no documentation regarding it. If you can find it, email it to OTH at seriouslydecent.com right. and I'll I'll uh I'll fix it up on the next episode. And then basically, how do paranormal researchers feel about the movie's retelling? During an interview, Lorraine Warren commented on what she had heard about the movie. And this is another like typical Warren thing. Quote I was also told about scratching on the walls and blood and seances. That isn't the type of thing that was occurring in the house at all. Lorraine Warren put it simply when saying the movie is very, very loosely based on the actual investigation. Right. So here comes the question of, did any of this stuff happen? And the big, it's a, it's a giant question mark. Right. It really is. And to what degree? Even the author was sitting there like, none of these stories mesh up. Right. Like, at least Amityville, I'll hand it to him. They all had the same story. Yeah. They had their shit together. Yeah. They even had the priest in on it, for Pete's sake. You mm-hmm. know I mean? Like, and they were all telling a valid story together. Yeah. But this was just mismatched all over. You can see it in the research when you do it. Mm-hmm. One website will say this. You can tell just like any... I think you see it now where, I mean, the plagiarism on websites is amazing at this point. Yeah. I mean, I just, I see straight up like copy and paste mm-hmm. on blogs Yeah, of other sites, you know? Mm-hmm. So I try to get some out of the way places and just try to spread off in different directions. And it was weird because there was just different yes. takes on the thing from the Snedeker's standpoint or Campbell's, mm-hmm. however you want to put it. But. The one thing that was consistent was the critics of right. the idea. Yeah. They were all pretty consistent of, yeah, this is weird. That's weird. Right. I think, right, everything could be said about what's been said there. But the fact that someone was living upstairs. Right. Yes. And they neglect to put that in the movie. Yeah. It just put it puts a giant hole in all of that stuff. Yeah. So that's what I got for the Snedekers. Well, I have been haunted by this episode of Unsolved Mysteries. I believe it was one of their Halloween episodes. I remember watching this particular episode of Unsolved Mysteries, and it's about this family. They buy this house, and it's the Tallman family. It's the location is Horicon, Wisconsin. The date that it occurred was May 1987 to January 1988. And in the episode, it's their home is depicted as a one floor like ranch style home. And Unsolved Mysteries stated on the site that they don't know if the house in the clip was actually their former residence. Yeah. So let's get into... The case. In early February of 1987, Alan and Deborah, Debbie, Tallman, brought home a bunk bed that they purchased at a secondhand shop. 
They assembled the bed and stored it in their basement. When the Tallmans moved the bed upstairs in May of 1987, it marked the beginning of nine months of horror for the family. From the moment the bed was first slept in, the house appeared to be haunted by spirits that terrorized first the children, then the entire family. The children, who were rarely sick before, suddenly became ill for no apparent reason. The night that the family moved the beds upstairs, their son, Danny, was in the room next to said bunk beds. After his parents said goodnight to him, his clock radio took on a life of its own where the dial just kept switching the channels under its own power. He reported that he saw the dial turning and moving by itself. However, his parents didn't believe him. A few weeks later, Alan, the husband, was painting walls in his basement when he went up for lunch. He placed the paintbrush on the table. When he returned, the brush was in the bucket with the bristles sticking up. When the youngest daughter was sleeping in the bunk bed, she claimed that she had seen a red-eyed witch behind her door. This red-eyed witch shows up a lot in their stories. She also claimed that she saw fire in her room. A month later, Danny saw the same thing, the, the sun. So the family pastor was brought in, and he felt the presence of evil inside the house. The Talmans continued to be tormented by the entities. Doors would bang open and shut. Strange voices would call out of nowhere, and ghostly visions persisted. A week before Christmas, Danny again saw something horrifying and told his mother that he wanted to leave. Frustrated, Alan told the spirits to get out of his house. Then he said if they wanted to fight someone, they should pick on someone their own size, and they should fight him. Challenge accepted. Really? Three weeks later, at around 2 a.m. on January 7th, 1988, Alan returned home from the late shift. Outside the garage, he heard an eerie howling sound and went to investigate. A voice came out of the howling that said, Come here. He went around the back to see if anyone was there, but there was no one. He then went back to the garage and saw that the garage door was on fire. He went inside to get a fire extinguisher, but when he came back out, the fire was gone. The garage door was undamaged with no visible signs of recent fire consummation. So there's no evidence of fire at all. Mm. When Alan got back inside, he went to reach his lunch pail that he had set down, but the entity then threw it across the room. Alan started sleeping in his daughter's room to provide protection. One night, a fog appeared around him and a voice came out of the fog that said, You're dead. Debbie then called the pastor because of what had happened to Alan. A few days later, Alan was working late and asked a relative to watch the girls. His relative, I believe it was his brother, was a complete skeptic until that night. That same horrible figure seen by the children appeared, and he let out a loud scream. In the episode, the witch told him, because he was in the room with the girls, again, much as Alan had been. Mm -hmm. And the witch told him he was dead, too. So so she threw it down twice. Yeah. So Debbie then told the relative to get the kids together and that they were leaving the house forever. Two weeks later, the Tallmans had the bunk beds destroyed. Afterwards, the Tallmans had no further paranormal experiences. And in April of 1988, a family moved into the Tallmans' old home and have had... No haunting experiences. So they did some 
background, Unsolved Mysteries did background. Well, the, yeah. Oh. The house that the Tallmans lived in had had no apparent history of hauntings. Horicon, Wisconsin is a small farming town of just 3,800. It is considered a safe and prosperous place. The Tallmans moved into their house on April 13th, 1986. So the investigation. The Tallmans family pastor, Wayne Dobratz, visited them shortly after the hauntings began. He believed that they were victims of the devil. He was certain that a demonic presence was in their home. He found no evidence that they were fabricating the incidents. Extra notes. The case was featured as part of a Halloween episode that aired on October 26, 1988. The Tallmans were beset by unwanted attention as a result of the earlier ghost hysteria, which they did not seek. They had turned down a lucrative tabloid offer about their experience as they did not think it was right to make any money off their children's misfortune. They agreed to share their story with Unsolved Mysteries under three conditions. They were to be censored during the interview, their children's names were to be protected by alias, and that all reenactments of their experiences be done by actors playing the Tallman family. The Tallman house activity was described in greater extent in the book Haunted America by Michael Norman and Beth Scott. But at no time in their research do they link the hauntings to a bunk bed. The activity is instead linked to the property as being located on or near former Native American burial grounds. That was huge in the 80s. It was. They yeah. always talked about Q that. Cue poltergeist. Cue uh, young guns. Yeah. This is considered <laughs> one of the most frightening and well-known paranormal cases of the series with the result that it is still unsolved. Mm. So let's get into the article. So the entire title of the article is Haunted House to be Sold, Bunk Beds Buried in Landfill. The bunk beds have been buried and the Tallman family home is up for sale, apparitions and all. Deborah Tallman, her husband Alan, and their two young daughters and son fled the home last month. Strange and frightening things were happening and they had had enough. The problems began six months ago when the Tallmans bought a second-hand set of bunk beds for 100 bucks, the ones that they had buried. The beds were buried Saturday in a landfill where nobody will ever build, Deborah Tallman said. They took them out there and plowed them under. Alan Tallman said frightening things occurred after the arrival of the bunk beds in the room shared by the two girls. Listen to this. Ages one and two such as the foggy apparition that threatened him, saying, you're dead. The Tallmans bought the house with a low-interest Farmer's Home Administration loan. Now they have turned the house over to the agency for sale. George Berger, chief of the state FMHA, Rural Housing Program, said final details would be worked out Friday to take the home. He said the couple will sign over the title and relinquish all equity in the house. Berger said under no circumstances, his agency requires borrowers to, quote, test the market, end quote, before it accepts title to homes. But exceptions are allowed and no one is being and one is being made in this case. So in other words, they want you to try and sell the house first before they take it over. And Mm -hmm. in this case, they made an exception. The Tallmans bought the home in November 1986. The four-year-old house had an estimated market value of $50,400. Deborah Tallman said the family 
probably would lose about $3,000 in the deal, but they were glad to be rid of the home. The Tallman said they saw strange glowing shapes, heard voices, and that the apparition of the old woman appeared to their son. A clock radio kept changing stations by itself, and a chair and suitcase also moved by themselves. Tallman said around Christmas time, after challenging the entity to leave his family alone and pick on him, he saw the flames on the overhead garage door. A voice said, come here, and two eyes appeared in the windows of the garage door. He said he looked again, and there was no fire. So in early January, a gassy apparition rose out of the floor of the girl's bedroom while Tallman was waiting for the younger child to fall asleep, and he said the apparition told him, you're dead, then was gone. A gassy apparition? Yep. Um, Unlike my gas. Yeah, not like farty, that would be farty the, apparition. That would be the apparition I would be. It would be. would be like, did you just blow ass? No. <laughs> You'd be sitting there. <laughs> yeah. And then all of a sudden I just kind of float over. They'd be like, I think the ghost just blew ass. Yeah. So they they were looking to buy a home in Beaver Dam like they got right out of Horicon. Mm-hmm. And Deborah said, I think it's going to be a long time before things get back to normal. I still cannot sit at home at night and not be afraid of the dark. They got rid of the bunk beds at this point. They did. Yeah. And they they did it in the episode of Unsolved Mysteries. So Mm. in Unsolved Mysteries, I think they approached it as a cursed object, meaning that the beds were cursed. They told the story. I clearly remember the son being in his bedroom and his... Radio just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And the kid like, Mom, I remember the the girls seeing the the quote unquote witch because they included her yeah. in the episode. I remember the father laying on the floor. I don't think they had the bunk beds like up. I think they had them separated. Or maybe they did have them set up as bunk beds. I I don't quite remember. But I do remember him laying on the floor. I do remember it was like dry ice Mm -hmm. or a fog machine and then hearing you're dead. I remember that. I remember the red eyes. I remember seeing the fire. And at that time, I was... I was convinced yeah. that we were going to die in a fire. I was just convinced. Yeah. 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 So narrated, all of these things, all of these things. Narrated by Robert Stack. Correct. A- <laughs> so to see like my nightmare and my horror, the only thing that could have been worse is if there were, if the house was infested with spiders. Mm-hmm. But I cl- I still remember everything from that episode. Weird. Like. It could play in a loop in my head because it has for years. (laughs) Like I was traumatized by this. So then I was like, okay. And I forgot about it for a while. And every now and again, you know, it would make an appearance when, you know, a movie would come on with a cursed object like the stupid Annabelle. Um, yeah, yeah. Robert the Doll, those things would all trigger it. Well, again that's a funny part because you brought up this specific thing last year mm-hmm. around February, March. Like, 
we got to do this as an episode. And you were talking about the yep. unsolved mysteries thing. And then like every cursed object thing we would do is like, it's just like them damn bunk beds. Yeah. Like this, this has sat with me. Like it sat yeah. into me. Yeah. Forever. I, I could speak at least a year of it. Yeah. That's crazy. And as soon as we started talking about how we wanted to do this podcast, this was one of the first uh, episodes I wanted to do. 60 episodes later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, this just shows all the ones that we want to do that yeah. are just backlogged up. Yeah. But this one definitely stuck with me the longest. How How long do you think? I watched, watched this. It. I watched this in Halloween of 1988. Yeah. On October 26, 1988, I watched this episode and then it replayed in my mind from October 26, 1988 till today. Till today. Yeah. I can still it's see amazing. the whole thing. I can see Robert Stack coming out doing his introduction. Well, he... I can see the getting right into the episode, like they go so far as to show them putting them together in the basement. Well, that's the thing. Unsolved mysteries was thorough. Oh, and then yeah. the thing was, is you had Robert Stack narrating it, which you just did. like he had that tone that was just so convincing. It was subtle. It was creepy. Yes. Because even like things when they were reunions, the reunions you didn't believe it until it said reunion. Yeah. Because he was just. He had that voice. Yeah, that and you're like, like, everything this guy says is horrible. Well, yeah. No, no good is going to come of any of like this. Like, he would narrate any story, and you'd be like, this is going to shit. Before he even got any details on it. Just the tone. Yeah. Inflections he was like, he like, was like that. the Grim Reaper. Yeah. We got more bad news. Yeah, no, that that type of inflection's like that. It just, yeah. You know, oh, well, it struck. You can, you can be a positive person all you want. but It struck a chord That's with crazy. So you've been carrying this. I've been carrying this story for. For 90% of your life. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. I don't, I'm trying to think of something not even equivalent, like from a horror standpoint, but just anything that I've carried that far with such like conviction and detail. Mm -hmm. And I think the only thing that instantly comes to mind would be Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Because that had like a massive impact on me as a kid. And I can see the whole movie yeah. like verbatim. But there's nothing else in my life that like, I mean, maybe some specific moments when I grew up, but I didn't get into Unsolved Mysteries as much as you did. Back in the oh, day. Oh, yeah. Well, here's the thing. I mean, it With was on family, because we only had like three fucking channels on TV. Right. Well, and it was on a lot, but like the I didn't. The thing that worked in my favor was my mom and dad dug it. Yeah. Okay. So and it was on in that At the regard. end of the day, yeah. they had control of the TV. Or at the very least, if I was watching this, they would be sitting down watching it with me. It was on yeah. on Sunday nights. Yeah, yeah. And I think it was on at 8 o'clock. You know what was my problem with the show? And you're going to... It's what? just so me. There was no resolution to it. It used to drive me crazy. I know it's unsolved mysteries. But, like, that part <laughs> of it drove me nuts. It's like, great, so I'm never going to know how this works out. 
Oh, great. I'm never going to know how that works well, out. Well, you want to oh, know. Oh, that person's missing? Babe, oh, I don't know. No, no, no. You watch it now on Amazon because they're rerunning all of the episodes. Oh, I know. And almost every single episode is solved, is solved now. So maybe, maybe <laughs> that's it. Yeah, because at the time that drove me crazy. I'd have to say. And like looking at me as an adult now, that just totally scans. I watched season one on Amazon. And this was just recently. I think mm-hmm. it was within the last year. I was actually looking for this episode. Yeah. So now that I know where it fell, I can find it. And I think in that first season, there out of all the stories they did, there were only three of them that were still unsolved. The rest of them were all solved. That's crazy. <laughs> That's crazy. And I was like, they should rename it. Solved mysteries. Solved mysteries. <laughs> yeah. So what pissed me off when we were getting into doing this one mm-hmm. is I listened to several podcasts and yeah. at least two of the podcasts that I subscribe to have in the last six months mm-hmm. done an episode on this yeah, no, it or happens. at least included it in their episode. It happens. I was like, seriously? Yeah. No, I've, I, it happens. I, It's weird how it'll go. Like, what was it? We did freak shows because, like, I always wanted to do that. Yep. And, um, you know, Aaron Mickey has shows. a whole new. Aaron Mickey, you told me, like, after, a, a, like, it was a week after ours dropped. Yeah. You're like, Aaron Mickey's got a whole thing with, you know. And I think it's awesome that he's doing it because it's fascinating. It's a whole season. Fascinating yep. topic. But that's where, like, you can't sit there and say, oh, you listen to art. That's a whole season. Like, that yeah. takes planning. You yeah. know, that's a lot yeah. of planning. But a lot of it does intermesh, you know, and that's where I talk to people that haven't heard of the podcast before. It's like, we do a real niche group here. Like, yeah. it's it's real niche. Yeah. And, and we get that. And, like, as far as, like, the reach we've gotten with this, I, you know, we often talk about it. It's just I'm amazed and astounded. Yeah. By the reach we have. Uh, and we, we do have these like hardcore, hardcore fans, but that's the, the niche we're in. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're not going to get everybody. We know that we're not going to be this yeah. like popular, like I would love this to be a mainstream like podcast. It'd be great oh, just to would. reach that many people and yeah. like have this many people listen to the stories. Of you that. know, to hear the <coughs> podcast that I subscribe to and they're, they all have millions of yeah. downloads per episode. And I'm yeah. just like, sons of bitches. Well, it's tough though. And I say this to any aspiring podcaster that's coming out. You got to put the heavy lifting in. Yes. Because if, uh, if you start a podcast and you expect it to take off right away, it could happen. It really could. If you do a popular enough topic, I mean, like if you're like the stay-at-home mom or something like that. You got a massive audience you can draw from on that. Right. Or if you're, like, with horror stuff like this, we could have done movies. Yeah. And instantly tapped into a larger group. Right, yeah. But we didn't want to do that. And that's kind of the thing that, like, if you're looking to start a podcast, you got to do something you love because you're going to be doing it a lot. Yes. I mean, this is episode 60 for us. We're a year and... A month, almost two months uh, through, we've done every week. Uh, the thing is, is we love talking about this stuff. We love doing this stuff. We, we would do it if we, we didn't have the podcast. About, 
The whole and, point is we do talk about yeah, this stuff. And we have been talking about this. And stuff. that's where I got great advice from somebody that just like stick with what you like, what you yep. love to do. And if there's two ways of getting big with a podcast and it's true. You either find somebody that has a large reach that finds you and name drops you. Yep. Or you stay in it long enough to where a lot of people find you. Just it's, find you. Because yeah. it's exponential. I mean, our first year we did with this, I'm more than impressed by what we did. Me too. Because honestly, if we do the same growth we did this year, we're in a really nice position to be authoritative with sponsors and right, things yeah. like that. You know, we're right now we're still, I mean, we have some recognition as far as the percentage we're at in podcasts in the right, world yeah. and and with horror podcasts but yeah the tough part is, is you can't look at those like top five top 10 podcasts and no matter what genre you're doing or niche because yeah. a lot of them have fame they can lead lean on for it well or yeah. they've been doing it and it's fame but they've also been doing it for three to four years yeah and like that again Aaron Mankey's been doing yeah he's been doing it for a long time all of long them, time. All of them that are up there in the top ten, they've been doing it for a long time, and it and it does. Again, I say this to podcasters that are thinking of doing this: you got to think that long ahead. You got to say, "Do I want to do this for three to four years?" Right. Because the thing is, is if you do it for six months and say you do one once a week, you only got twenty four episodes. So yeah. if someone is looking at your podcast, they're going to say, "Well, you know." They've got a few episodes. Yeah. But if they burn through them, they're burning through 24 of them. They could do it in a day at two times speed. Yeah. If it's an hour long podcast. Well, I'll be honest. A lot of the podcasts I subscribed to were single season. And that single season could have been six episodes, could have been 10 episodes, could mm -hmm. have been 12. Yeah. And then occasionally they'll do some sort of update. But, but you for get the most part, it's. It's a one and but, done. But you have to do it after a year or two because then you become binge worthy after that. Right. Like right now, if someone were to come across us, there's 59 other episodes right. they could listen to versus mm -hmm. say 10 yeah. when you're first started. Yep. And it's defeating that way. You can't stare at the analytics. You can't look at them. It'll make you wonder why you're doing all this stuff. And that right. gets back to you got to do what you love. Right. Because, I mean, we get psyched about doing this all the time. So do you remember this being on Unsolved Mysteries at all? I, I never saw it. I remember this episode of Unsolved Mysteries. I remember the Haunting of the Queen Mary episode of Unsolved Mysteries. I remember the Queen Mary. I remember I that remember, one. I believe they did the Winchester House on Unsolved Mysteries. Mm. Or I remember it from something else, but I do remember seeing uh, a, a television show on that. Yeah. And the other thing I remember from Unsolved Mysteries is the D.B. Cooper episode. I remember the D.B. Cooper one. A lot of them that I remember were the ones that just like missing people. Because that was a lot of them. Oh, a ton that of them. That was a ton of a them. A ton of missing them were people. missing. That's why I and, loved the Halloween ones. And that's I where I couldn't get over like. We were going to get the ghost Like stories. how easy it was to just like someone to just be missing. Like I didn't realize it until watching unsolved mysteries you know and it's just like uh, you can go to a gas station and you know yeah. and yeah. and just end up missing i think yeah. a lot of those stories like especially like the teens those were kids that just ran away from home yeah i would imagine you know upset with stuff at the house or whatever 
Of course, the first thing they say about missing people is it's a relative that took them. Yeah. Which just fucking blows my mind, that stuff. Most of the time, yeah. It just blows my mind that it's a relative. Yeah. Because, like, we were raised in this age. Like, we were in a weird generation. Adam. Because, well, no. We are in a weird generation because when we grew up, you could trust strangers. Short. It was a short deal. Yeah. It was till we were about five or six. You could trust strangers. And that was... Until Adam Walsh got and abducted then, from the well, Sears. It wasn't just Adam Walsh. It was a few of them. Yeah. And again, this is where I think TV kind of fucked it for everybody. Because mm-hmm. again, they would tell you that story mm-hmm. of that person in Florida. Yep. And you could be in Wyoming and they could make it sound like it happened right the fuck next to you. Yeah. And, and it got everybody all paranoid. Yep. And it was just like, well, you know... Your kids could just get snatched at any time. And I would always tell somebody, how many people you know had their kids snatched? Like, personally, no. Yeah. Not TV, but, like, in your social circle, how many people? And the answer is always zero. Yeah. It's just nobody knows anything. It's like having Halloween candy with shit in it. Yeah. You hear people say, well, it happens all the time. It's like, all right, then who who do you know personally? Right. They had a needle in there, you know, that a friend didn't do it or something like that. And and I think this is where TV makes it terrible. And now, like, social media, it's even worse. Yeah. Because it just, yeah. it makes it look so close and oh, it's happening. related to it's it. Happening it's happening all the time, right next door. Yeah. Right outside your door. And then, but that was a weird thing, because, like, that's just stupid stuff I look into, like, how people turn up missing and kids and stuff like yeah. that. And you just read like relative, 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 yeah. relative, relative. Most of the time. It's like here you are brought up the whole time that you can't trust a fucking stranger at all. Yeah. But yet your uncle's the one who's going to fucking take you or your aunt or a cousin a parent. or a parent or, yep. you know, whatever. And it's just, ah, it's nuts. Absolutely Same nuts. with murder stats. Yeah. It's usually someone closely related. Mm-hmm. It's not the... The rare murderer or serial killer killing somebody isn't as frequent as we're led to believe. Well, that's because a murder is more like a crime of passion. Yes. It really, truly is. I mean, you have those other ones where people just, and that's still a crime of passion, but they're directing it towards a stranger. But. That's where, I mean, like, you and I will be sitting there watching TV or something. They'll be like, you know, man dies in his house. And I'm like, where's his wife? Yeah. And then it'd be the other way around, too. Like, you know, woman dies in her house. Where's the husband? Yeah. Because it's just generally, it's more of a crime of passion than anything. And if it's not the husband or the wife, who were they seeing outside of it that wanted more yep and that's probably 80 percent of the murders right there yeah just like chalked up and done yep and that's where i gotta laugh where like you know because i remember talking to your uncle about like that type of stuff Mm -hmm. and they're just like yeah no that's why they question yeah you know that's that's why they question the significant other significant others yeah and and the friends to to get into the their their life their pattern because the odds are there Correct. Even if it's not true, it's just the odds are against. That's why I always say the odds say are ever I, in their favor. <laughs> if I had no, I told your brother, I I've said it, I think before in the podcast, but like, if I had no alibi, say I was just like went out for a hike in the woods, mm-hmm. came home, and you were bloodied on the floor, beaten. Yeah, I'm gone. Yeah, I'm disappearing. There's no way I'm getting out of this. 
No way. They'll ping your cell phone. They'll yeah. find out where you were. And yeah. they'll see that, oh, he was in the Tetons. He left his phone home. <laughs> That's... Yeah. So I got a knock-knock joke for you. Okay. Knock-knock. Who's there? Ice cream. Ice cream who? Ice cream every time I see a ghost. Do you now? Yeah. Zero times that you've seen a ghost? Yeah. <laughs> so I don't scream. No, you don't. But I have a lot of ice cream. You That's do. A, yeah. You do. All right. Next week. Next week, in honor of Valentine's yes, Day, yes. we have the Ken and Barbie killers. I know. This is yeah. great. <laughs> on on V-Day. Yes. The day of love. Yes. And it falls on a Monday. Yeah. Which is just perfect. It is. The it Ken is. and Barbie killers. Yeah. Yep. Man. What a story. That is a story. I, it's I, a juicy little nugget. Yeah, I can't wait to talk about that one. Yeah. That's, uh, it's going to be nice. And and then following the Ken and Barbie killers is our cult of the month episode to keep you cult fans uh, rearing up for something. Yeah. Because yep. <laughs> Axiom was such a big hit. Actually, <laughs> it's weird. This, this goes yeah. back to you can't like stare at analytics the whole time. Right. Because it does even out at some point. Right. People pick and, pick and choose. Pick and choose and, and, like their nose. and whatnot. Yeah. And I, I still think there's a lot of people who have no idea what the hell Nexium is. Well, you just got to check out our episode. Well, especially like the way the letters are. People yeah. People be like, I don't know what that is. N-X-I-V-M. Yeah. It's. Old wacky Keith. Stupid. Old wacky Keith. Yeah, so Ken and Barbie Killers next week. Yep. And uh, if you're in, <laughs> at, at this time uh, when you're hearing this, if you're in uh, New York, period, in the state, I hope uh, I hope the snow worked out for you. But with that being said, rule number one. No Ouija boards. Two. No dolls. Three. No capes. Four. No blood rituals. Fiverr. No cults, satanic or otherwise. Six. No apathy. You have to act to enact a positive change in the world. It's 100% possible and plausible. We can do it. It is. You just take baby steps a little bit at a time. Number seven. Don't let the black-eyed children in. No. And I'd like to offer number eight. No more fucking snow. (laughs) That's a temporary eight. Yeah. Yeah. Stupid. Well, we live up here. It's the way it goes. Not by choice. No. No. I'm on the hunt for a state or country where snow's just like... Optional. No, it's not an option. No. No, I've always said if we leave here, I want golf weather year-round. I want year-round golf weather. Okay. I want the option to walk out in the second week, third week of February. And just golf. Just grab my bag. Yep. And play a round or two. Mm-hmm. And just have that option. It would be a nice option. Even if I got to wear long sleeves, I'm cool with that. Yeah. But, yeah, no, that's what I want. So I guess we just got to make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> it's at the point now where I've got a group of people who are just waiting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. They're like, are we still in the country? Sadly, yes. Well, <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah. So, folks, have a great day. Have a lovely week. 
and make good choices. Take care.